Well, welcome everyone to Oan this morning. It's nice to see some familiar faces, some faces we haven't seen in a while, and some new faces. Welcome. It's great that you could join us today. And thanks for making the effort. Um, this place is able to be here and offer what it does because you're here. Without you, it's just a building. Nice building, but just a building. For the last few months, we had been exploring various themes and topics in the writings of our root teacher, Kobun Chino Otagawa Roshi, or just Kobun for short. And then came Udumbara, our end of summer session, where we celebrated, commemorated the first transmission of the teachings from Shakyamuni Buddha to Mahakasyapa in what's sometimes called the flower sermon. And as of last week, we're on to a different theme for however long we feel like exploring it, talking about it, picking it apart, putting it back together. And that's the Heart Sutra, uh, which we read together this morning during service. Last week, Roshi talked about the first section of the sutra or part of the sutra. I like the word chunk of the sutra. The lines that read, the bodhisattva of compassion from the depths of perfect wisdom saw the emptiness of all conditioned beings and sundered the bonds that create suffering. If you practice Elsewhere, you might find that these lines are rendered a little bit differently. Here's another translation that's common. Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, when practicing deeply the Prajnaparamita, perceived that all five skandhas are empty and was saved from all suffering and distress. Last week, Roshi used these lines to talk about loneliness, a real feeling, we said. Some of you have probably felt that way at some point in your life. I know I have, and in the not-too-distant past, in fact. And she used the topic of emptiness in these lines to explore that feeling. Again, a real feeling, but not one that maps on to the way in which things actually are in the world. Though it can certainly feel that way. Another way of saying that things are empty is to say that things are conditioned. That they do not exist independently, but dependently. And one of the ways in which we and all things are conditioned, or one of the things on which our existence depends, is relationships. This is something that's been coming up a lot lately in our discussions. Roshi likes to say that we are always in relationships. 
relationships with other human beings. We're all in relationships together. And non-human animals, maybe you have pets. I know I do. Sometimes I wish I wasn't in relationships with them, like at 4.47 in the morning. That's when one of my cats decided to be in relationship with my left ankle. (laughs) Very intimate relationship with my left ankle. We're always in relationships with our environment in this building, out in the forests in which our temple finds itself. And with inanimate things too, are we in relationships? The cushions we're sitting on the candles in the zendo, the incense that we offer at the beginning of service, and the many layers of these formal robes. I'm in a very intimate relationship with these layers, you less so, and that's good for you. It's very warm (laughs) inside these robes. These relationships, these conditions, are the entirety of what makes us who we are. And for this reason, we sometimes say that we're empty. Empty of what? Sometimes we call it a fixed nature. Sometimes we call it a fixed self. A fixed nature or a fixed self in the teachings is something that is often said to satisfy three conditions. First, it's singular. It's not made up of parts, right? It's just one thing. Second, it's autonomous, meaning it doesn't depend on other things for its existence. And third, it's unchanging. Doesn't change in its quality, Sometimes it's rough, maybe other times it's smooth. Doesn't change in position. Sometimes it's here, now it's over there. Anything that satisfies these three conditions is said to be a fixed nature or a fixed self. And the teachings say that nothing satisfies these three conditions. So there is no fixed nature or fixed self. Now, You shouldn't take my word for that, and you shouldn't take the word of the teachings for that. You should investigate for yourself whether you can find anything inside of yourself, outside of yourself, that satisfies these three conditions. And if you choose to undertake such an investigation, it would be interesting to hear what you find. Maybe we could have a conversation about that at some point. It's also the case that because our relationships are constantly changing, we too are constantly changing. Even your relationship to me here in this Zendo has changed from when I first started talking. You had no idea what I was going to say this morning, except maybe something about the Heart Sutra, and now I've said many things. And maybe you're tired, maybe you're confused, Maybe you're bored. Maybe you're irritated. Taishan, will you get to the point already? No, I won't. Each moment we're born anew because of this. 
because all of our relationships have changed from how and what they were in the previous moment. Mayazumi Roshi, the founder of the Zen Center of Los Angeles, I'm told, would often say to his students, to his Sangha, that in a 24-hour period, we're born and we die six and a half billion times. That's a lot of times. And that's a lot of change. The question I want to spend some time with this morning, though, is how does perceiving this, seeing this, that the relationships we're always in that constitute the whole of what and who we are are constantly changing and so we're empty, sunder the bonds that create suffering. One way in which we suffer is feeling alone. But because we're always in relationships with one another, we're never really alone, though it can certainly feel that way. Another way in which we suffer is feeling stuck. That this way that life is at this moment, right now, will always be this way. And that there is nothing that anyone can say or that anyone can do to change it. It's going to be like this forever, forever, forever and ever and I wish it would change. I'm going to assume that you've all felt this way at some point. And maybe you didn't feel it as dramatically as I put it, but that doesn't matter. Just as is the case with loneliness, because we are conditioned beings, because we're always in relationships, we can never be stuck. We may feel that way, and it's a real feeling, but it doesn't reflect the way that things are. It's not just we who feel this way sometimes. It's also the case that the Buddha's immediate disciples sometimes felt this way. There's a scene from the Vimalakirti Sutra that we spent a little bit of time with earlier in the year that I want to share with you this morning. In this scene, Shakyamuni Buddha has been explaining how the conditions of the Buddha field in which one resides, it's another term that's become common for us on Sundays, this idea of a field that we come together and co-create, a field of practice. We call it a Buddha field. You're in one right now, by the way. It shows up on Sundays is dependent in part on the condition of those who come together and create this field. How we are influences what it is that we see, what it is that we create, and how it is that we relate to what it is that right, that's right in front of us, the environment in which we find ourselves. And at a certain point, in the Buddha's explanation of how it is that these Buddha fields come into being and how it is they are, how they are in some moment, Shariputra, the same Shariputra that we hear about in the Heart Sutra, 
has the following thought. If the Buddha field is pure because of the Bodhisattva's pure mind, is it because the mind of the world-honored one was not pure when he was still in the Bodhisattva stage that this Buddha field, this world, is so unclean as we see it now? Suppose you have a friend who's taking like a home repair class and is like learning how to install cabinets and you want to redo the cabinets in your kitchen and they say, I'll do it, no cost. Just supply me with the parts, I'll make it happen. You can go away for the weekend, go camping. You can come back and I will have redone the cabinets in the kitchen for you, it'll be fantastic. And you say, great. And you leave and you go and you come back and you notice that your friend really hasn't done that good of a job. The cabinets are crooked. They're not in the right space. One's missing a door. One's upside down. That's kind of what Shariputra is saying here. He looks out at the world in which he and the other disciples and the Buddha reside, and he sees some things that he thinks are imperfect about it. And he has the thought, um, Buddha, maybe you should have waited to create this Buddha field with all of us until you were a little bit farther along on the path. Your friend should have waited to install your cabinets until they'd taken a few more classes and learned how to do it properly. Of course, Shariputra doesn't say this because they're in the presence of the world-honored one. But Shariputra's thinking it. I don't know about this thing over here, Buddha. Now, the Buddha knows what it is that Shariputra is thinking. Don't ask me how. And he says to Shariputra, Are the sun and the moon not clean when a blind man does not see their cleanliness? And Shariputra said, World-honored one, this is the fault of the blind man and not that of the sun and the moon. The Buddha said, Shariputra Because of their spiritual blindness, living beings do not see the imposing majesty of the Tathagata's pure land. This is not the fault of me, the Tathagata. Shariputra, this land of mind is pure, but you do not see its purity. It's at this point that the analogy I made with your friend who's redoing your cabinets is no longer helpful. Right, Your cabinets really are upside down and not installed properly. But what the Buddha is saying here is actually things are much different than you see them, Shariputra. There's just something getting in the way. The conversation goes on and at one point Shariputra says, I can't understand Shakyamuni, I see that this world is full of hills and mountains, pits, stones, stones, and earth, which are all unclean. We might not talk about pits and stones and earth, but we might look around and see that there's war and see that there's famine 
and see that there's disease and see that there's death and wonder about this field in which we reside. And can it really be a field of practice, the kind of pure land or splendid place that the Buddha says we reside in? It's at this point that after Shariputra has almost exhausted himself making his case to the Buddha, that the Buddha does something very interesting. He gets down from his seat and he presses the toes of his foot into the ground. And the world is suddenly adorned with hundreds and thousands of rare and precious gems of the great universe like the precious, majestic Buddha's pure land is adorned with countless precious merits, which the assembly praised and had never seen before. In addition, each person present found themselves seated on a precious lotus throne. All of a sudden, Shariputra is stunned. World-honored one, I've never seen and heard of this Buddha land and its majestic purity. And then the Buddha stops pressing his toes into the ground, and the world returns to its previous condition, with all of the things that Shariputra found objectionable. The mountains and hills, the war, the the disease, the famine, the death. I want to spend a little bit more time with this scene. There's a change that happens in what it is that Shariputra sees as he looks out over the Buddha field, both with his ordinary eyes, because I don't have a better way to talk about it, and what we sometimes call your eyes of practice. The Buddha field once Shakyamuni digs his toes into the earth, is no longer filled with many unpleasant sights. It's filled with many pleasant sights, by contrast. And then the unpleasant sights come back again when his toes are removed from the earth. And yet despite the presence or absence of these pleasant or unpleasant sights, continually he describes the world in which everyone is living, this Buddha field that they've come together and co-created as pure and clean. And I want to ask, what do these words pure and clean mean here? It's tempting to see them as describing what you might call the content of the field. Are there thorns or are there no thorns? Is there sickness or is there no sickness? But again, Shakyamuni says that the field is always pure and clean, even when these things that we typically think of as unpleasant sights are present. So if it's not that, what else could it be? I'm going to suggest that it means that the field is without a fixed nature, 
or a fixed self that would constrain the way in which that field could be. Put differently, the field, just as is the case for all other conditioned beings, is empty. Nothing necessitates its continuing to be the way that it currently is, and nothing necessitates Shariputra's continuing to see it in that way. The field is empty. Shariputra is empty. All things are empty. And so there's nothing that prevents the sort of transformation that the Buddha helped bring about by digging his toes into the earth from happening. Because where there is emptiness, there is the possibility for change. Or we might say where there is emptiness, there is the possibility of liberation. If my bringing into this talk this morning, this scene from the Vimalakirti Sutra is too much for you, too out there. Let me give you another example. Some of you know that I saw my dad and his partner last week. It had been two years since I'd seen them in person. And a lot has happened in that time. I left behind a career, something I'd been working towards and in fact doing for 18 years, 17 years. I got sober put an end to a pattern of self-destructive behavior that had dominated a good part of my life. I decided to, in my own way, wholeheartedly embrace a religious way of living. It looks something like this. I moved into this temple. So did my cats. You can hear them if you listen. They're meowing downstairs. Don't forget us, they're saying. And there are other things too, but really any one of these things on this list that I've just shared with you this morning is significant. Sometimes, maybe even many times, but I don't have any data on this, and I don't really need to either. One's immediate family, one's biological family is directly involved in these sort of big changes. They offer support, they offer care, they offer comfort when someone makes a big shift in their life. Mine weren't. Not because they didn't want to be, but because I didn't want them to be. As I started making some big changes in my life, I said to the two of them, stay away. Stay very far away. There's a, the edge of the circle is like somewhere out there. Don't come close. Stay out there. Some weeks ago, Roshi talked about the distance in relationships using a sword. And she said, sometimes we walk together on the edge of the blade. We're very close to one another. And sometimes the relationship needs space 
two people need space. So we turn the blade on its side and the two people can have some space, still be connected with one another, but not this close. More like this close. That's what I did with my dad and his partner. I turned the blade on its side and I'm pretty lucky that my sword has a very wide blade. Because my relationship with them had reached a place where that was necessary, where that was an appropriate decision. And some of this is for the usual reasons between father and son or parent and child over a period of, in my case, 36 years, there's going to be some stuff that comes up. And you need to do a little house cleaning. Otherwise, you've just got a pile of stuff sitting in a closet that's not being dealt with and it's all going to come tumbling out. Space is necessary, healthy even, so that things can breathe, can settle. And a good chunk of what was in this metaphorical closet actually came in the six month prior to me saying, you need to go away for a while. I could go on, but I won't. What I will say is that I, like Shariputra, saw the relationship as it was, and I couldn't see it any other way. Shariputra looked out at the world and saw lots of unpleasant things and went, Shakyamuni, this is a problem, and we can't change the way that the world is. I looked at this relationship, and I said, I guess this is just how it's going to be from now on. There's going to be this distance between my dad and his partner and I, because things have just gotten to a point where it's so bad that I can't even really talk to them. I had lost sight of the fact that the relationship, like the field, like all things, was empty, was pure and clean. Until I didn't. <laughs> So what happened during a phone conversation? I said, hey, maybe you should come visit at some point this year. He said, okay, come at the end of July. Great. Because I thought maybe change was possible. Maybe the relationship didn't have to be the way that it was and the way that it had been. They met Roshi. We had dinner together. They met my partner. I made them breakfast, and I invited them to put stitches in my okesa. It's wonderful photos downstairs of us doing that. The visit ended with laughter and hugs and homemade ice cream. From pits and thorns, there came to be a field filled with jewels and everyone seated on precious lotus thrones. One wonders how a change like this could happen. If you would have told me that's how the visit would have gone six months ago, I would have laughed at you, and I would have been so confident that I was right. My response to that question is rather simple. That relationship 
is not anything or any kind of thing all on its own. It is what it is because of the connections, the conditions, or relationships of that moment. Conditions that are always changing. It too, in its own way, is empty of a fixed nature or a fixed self. And although it felt that it was one way and would always be that way and could not be any other way, it felt as though I was stuck, it never really was. Again, it was just a feeling. When I was able to see, just as we say at the beginning of the sutra that Avalokiteshvara saw, the emptiness of that relationship, of the parties to that relationship, and of, importantly, my fixed ideas about the relationship, the potential for change or transformation for a liberation from suffering was realized. No longer was my vision tunneled on a non-existent past or a not-necessary future, but I was able to open myself to the present, to continually expand the field in which the three, then four, then five, and seven, if we count the cats, helped co-create. The bonds of suffering had been sundered. They were no more. Sometimes it said that there are three ingredients to living well. Honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. I like to say that there's just one. Getting and staying out of your own way. Dogen Zenji writes in the Genjo Koan that to carry the self forward and illuminate myriad things is delusion, and it's a fantastic way to get stuck. But having myriad things come forth and illuminate the self is awakening. And perhaps we can say from yet another perspective that living well is encouraged by perceiving with the mind's eye, with the eye of practice, the emptiness of all things. May you be able to see this a bit more today. Thank you.